Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. Today, we talk with Kate Konchnik. When we recorded this episode in mid-December 2021, Kate was senior lecturer at Duke University Law School. She has since left Duke and is now serving in the Biden administration's Department of Justice. Kate has a wide range of expertise in energy and environmental law, and today she's going to help us understand one of the most complex topics in the energy world, Regional Transmission Organizations, or RTOs. If you've never heard of an RTO, don't worry. Kate will help us understand what they do, why they're important, and how they can evolve to provide more reliable, affordable, and clean electricity in the years ahead. Stay with us. Okay, Kate Koshnick from Duke University Law School. Welcome to Resources Radio. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So, Kate, it's great to talk to you today. Uh, we're going to talk about a project that you're involved with called RTOGov. We will tell everybody what that means in just a moment. But before we do, we ask all of our guests how they got interested uh, working on environmental issues. So what sort of steered you into this world? Oh, for me, it was love of outdoors and the amount of time I spent in the outdoors with my family growing up. I think I went on my first camping trip when I was two months old, and uh, we did a lot of car trips. When I was a kid, we lived in Maryland, and my mom's younger brother lived in New Mexico. So a number of summers in a row, we just packed up the car with a tent and sleeping bags and a box of books and a bunch of peanut butter and jelly making sandwich makings and uh, headed out and just uh, explored the United States and its national parks. And I, I just got hooked. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That's so great. Yeah. Road trips are the best. Um, and especially, yeah, if you're having fun with your family camping and I imagine you were driving through very beautiful places. Yes. I mean, there was always a little bit of uh, running the gauntlet of, you know, interstates in the East to get to the pretty stuff. Although we, we ended up, as I got older, appreciating a lot more of the nature that was even just in our backyard in the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area. So, um, but yeah, so when I was a little kid, I used to sleep a lot for the first couple of days until we got to the big mountains and uh, waterfalls and geysers and exciting things like that. Yeah. That's so cool. Well, um, so we could totally, you know, reminisce about road tripping, I'm sure, for <laughs> 30 minutes. But instead, uh, we're going to talk about RTO Gov. So um, first, let's start with the basics. What is an RTO? Uh, and what is RTO Gov? Why do RTOs matter? Can you just kind of get us started? Yeah, sure. So I, we like to say in our RTO Gov project that RTOs are the most important player in the energy space that you've never heard of. Uh, so these are regional transmission organizations. There are also things called independent system operators. At one point, FERC, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, made a distinction between these entities. It's a distinction without a difference at this point. So we just use RTO, that acronym for Regional Transmission Organization, to cover all of them. But they are, in essence, uh, private entities most often nonprofit corporations that are managing the transmission lines for multiple uh, electric utilities and running regional uh, auctions of energy, real-time energy, the energy or electricity that utilities might need the next day. And in some of these markets, they're running auctions for 
the procurement of future energy or capacity. So three years, two years in the future, how do we know the, the, the power plants will be there for you to, to purchase the electricity that you need? There are seven of these types of organizations in the United States serving two-thirds of electricity customers. Six of them are regulated by the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, and I'll explain a little bit more about that in a second. And then the seventh is run by the state of Texas. So ERCOT uh, is the is the acronym there, and please don't make me spell that one out, but that is the <laughs> Texas, <laughs> I always forget one I got of the you. words. <laughs> I got you, Kate. It's, it's Electric Reliability Council of Texas. Awesome. Thank you. I knew you could help me there my lifeline. Um, but yeah, so ERCOT is is its own funny little uh, beast uh, entirely within the state of Texas. Texas actually has its own synchronous grid that isn't connected to the other two really big grids in the United States. And so that one is a little bit separated uh, with some real world implications, as we saw with their blackouts earlier this year when they weren't connected to the rest of the, the U.S. and couldn't get power into that state when uh, a lot of their power plants were failing. But for the six RTOs that are regulated by FERC, uh, these all came about because Congress in the mid-90s told the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, hey, we'd like to liberalize and get more competition in the electricity sector. We've done it with railroads. We've done it with telecommunications. We'd like to see it now with electricity. But Congress didn't give FERC the same very explicit tools that it gave the other federal regulators for railroads and telecoms. And so, you know, they gave them some guidance and FERC followed that guidance at first and required electric utilities that own transmission to open up their wires and let third parties buy and sell power and use their wires as sort of common carriers. But then FERC went another step without explicit sort of uh, direction from Congress and started encouraging that multiple utilities work together in these regional organizations. And then when these regional organizations were proposed to FERC and FERC approved them, FERC regulated them like public utilities under the Federal Power Act. And so they've created this whole other new legal entity um, that is regulated under federal law, just like a Duke Energy when it's working in interstate commerce or another big electric utility. Um, and in that way, that the Energy Regulatory Commission needs to make sure that uh, rates are just and reasonable and that uh, the operations are not unduly discriminatory. And so those are the sort of hooks that the federal regulators have on these otherwise private entities running the wires and running auctions for energy for you and me. Great. That's super interesting. Um, and I mean, there's so much to, to unpack there and so so many ways we could dig down. Um, but I think where I'd like to start is um, with this issue that I know you're focused on in the RTOGov project, which is uh, transparency of RTO and ISO decision-making and engagement with different stakeholders. So can you give us uh, a sense of you know, why does transparency matter in the decision-making process of these organizations? And, you know, what are some of the issues that experts have raised around those topics and, you know, identification of how to improve transparency and just help us understand why why this matters? Yeah, sure. So first of all, it's really important to, to point out that FERC didn't require RTOs to be created in any particular way or to set up decision-making processes uh, in the exact same way. And so 
it's always important to, to focus on specific markets because they each have sort of set themselves up differently. Uh, who's considered a stakeholder is very different from market to market and how they make decisions is very different. Um, but across the board, the RTOs, which all sort of, there's been a one more in the last decade, but most of them came around about 20 years ago. They arose at a very different time in our power sector. So the players in the electricity uh, sector at that point were largely big vertically integrated electric utilities that produced their own power, owned their own lines, and then sold you the power at your homes or businesses. Uh, there were some merchant generators, sort of independent producers, but very small. Uh, there were the state regulators who oversaw regulation of those utilities. And then there were reliability organizations kind of making sure the lights stay on. And so these RTOs, when they were first created, it was really about efficiency, getting low electricity prices, and it was also about reliability. Let's have more of these utilities working together and running wires from a central operator, and this is going to be good for reliable affordable power. Um, we didn't see a lot of um, other sorts of goals, like except some of the goals that we've now sort of layered onto our grid, like we want it to be resilient in the face of more intense storms, and we want it to be sustainable. We want to have lower carbon intensity power. So those goals started creeping in over the last 20 years. Environmental groups started getting a lot more interested in the grid and the power sector and how it could help us drive down emissions. Um, consumer groups got a lot more interested in having a voice and, and realized that in some cases, a lot of the locus of power had moved from the state regulator to these markets. And so what we've seen is the markets got set up at a time and they all are set up differently, but for instance, PJM, the biggest market, which is the acronym is sort of Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and Maryland, because it's centered on the Mid-Atlantic. They have these five, they have a membership-based program where you have to pay dues, and, and it's, a, it's a, you know, pretty arduous uh, participation process, lots and lots of meetings. And then they vote on various proposals in these sectors. They have five sectors and it's sector-weighted voting. So those, it's interesting looking at those sectors over time, the, there's a sector for transmission owners. There was only a handful. There's still only a handful of those. But then for instance, the suppliers sector has gone from very few power suppliers to hundreds of participants. Right. And so some of this issue about the, who is a stakeholder is just that the, the grid has changed so much in 20 years and these decision-making processes are a bit ossified and haven't sort of caught up. So there are a lot of folks who are not members in the membership-based organizations like PJM and New York ISO and the New England ISO um, who feel like they're on the outside looking in. Most of these markets are not great at posting minutes of meetings or even notifying that there were meetings or explaining sort of the implications of changes to their tariffs, to their sort of rulemaking book that they're submitting to FERC beyond the sort of very formal documents that they send to the Energy Regulatory Commission. And so states and environmental groups and consumer groups, a lot of and, and new entrants to the market, like, you know, somebody who's just come up with a new sort of demand response app for your phone or something, people trying to get into the market, these guys often feel like they're on the outside looking in and can't figure out how to engage 
with these markets. So a lot of our researchers were really interested in this from lots of different standpoints, but um, many of them are doing deeply engaged research and uh, interviewing stakeholders in these processes, both those who are officially part of a member-based organization and those who are trying to influence it from the outside. And through that, there, there have been a number of, of uh, proposals that are starting to be developed through our research and, and in partnership with stakeholders of even just things as easy as posting uh, agendas of meetings online saying, hey, this market is going to be discussing these things or minutes of those meetings so that, for instance, state legislators know what's going on in the market that they're sitting in. Right. Okay. Yeah, that that all makes sense. And I, I it's, it's starting to come together in my head. This is such a complex universe of actors and technologies and regulators. Um, yes. You know, it, it is... It is so important, but it's still a little abstract. And I imagine uh, for for me, for sure, and maybe for many of our listeners, it would be helpful to have an example. So can you take us through an example of, you know, just pick an instance where uh, there was some process led by an RTO or ISO in which you would consider the stakeholder engagement process to be particularly, you know, let's say good or bad? Yeah, well, so I, I can think of two examples, maybe just drawing on research that some of my colleagues have done. So Seth Bloomsack, who's a professor at Penn State, has done some really interesting work uh, studying the three member-based RTOs in the East, the one in New England, in New York, and PJM, and has looked at their voting records and trying to figure out sort of who aligns with whom and where where are their interesting coalitions that come about. And he's been doing some really interesting work about how PJM makes decisions. They have five voting sectors. Um, and as I started to talk about before, some of those sectors have five members in them and some of them have 700 members in them. So they're, you know, depending on who you are and what category you fall in, you've got more or less of a diluted vote. And you need to have a 60% uh, passage rate for any proposal. And so he's done some really interesting work on a, a very wonky but important topic around PJM's capacity market. So PJM is one of the three markets that one of the auctions it runs is for future energy. It requires any utility participating in PJM to promise to buy 100% of its electricity three years out from the market. Um, this has led to a lot of controversies because uh, there have been various rules about what's allowed to participate in that PJM capacity auction. Um, often what has been kept out in the last few years are state subsidized clean energy projects. Lots of East Coast states with subsidies for and programs to encourage deployment of clean energy. And so there's this potential where you've got a lot of in fact, clean energy on the grid that the market isn't recognizing. And so uh, the concern is that ratepayers in some of those states are paying twice. They're paying for the state subsidized clean energy, and then they're paying for 100% of their power needs through the market. So one of the issues has been around how much additional energy do we need three years out and what's the price that the, the, the market should pay for it to encourage it to come in. And so Seth has done these really interesting sort of counterfactual things where he's found that basically the, the way the, the sector weighted voting works in PJM right now is it's, a, it's very easy to create a coalition of no, and it's very hard on controversial issues 
to get a coalition for yes. And so he's showed that that process is breaking down a bit now where they had many, many no votes against lots of different ways to set this sort of price to bring in new energy. And as a result, the price, it's, it's called the variable resource requirement, VRR, but this price that PJM went ultimately with that it had to create on its own from its own staff because it couldn't get anything through the stakeholders. When it went to to FERC with that, it was actually a much higher price and so worse for consumers than many of the proposals that had been put in front of stakeholders and said no. Um, and all the stakeholders agreed they hated what PJM sent to FERC. And so Seth has talked about this of just sort of just on the basic math and how the sectors um, have evolved over time and how many players there are in each of these sectors and then the coalitions that build, we've, we've unfortunately sort of created a design flaw in PJM where it's really hard to get stuff through. And so that, that would be a potentially a place for governance reform. Um, another example I might just give that maybe is even a little bit more accessible to, to your audience is just um, how new types of technologies get into these markets. So again, I'd said at the beginning that the Energy Regulatory Commission, when it's overseeing these markets, it's pretty differential and, and hands-off, but it, it has these sort of two hooks in the Federal Power Act. It has to make sure the rates are just and reasonable, and it's decided as long as these markets are competitive, that they are creating market-based rates that are then deemed just and reasonable and that they're not unduly discriminatory. And what we've seen FERC do uh, several times in the last few years is out of a concern that there could be some undue discrimination against new entrants, they've issued these orders saying to all of the markets at once, hey, you need to change your rules to accommodate these new technologies. And so they've done that, for instance, with energy storage, battery storage, um, with this order called Order 841. Um, and you can see even before then, and this is a lot of the work that Stephanie Lenhart has done out of Boise State in RTOGov, is this sort of issue tracing of, okay, well, some of the markets were already doing a really good job on energy storage. California's ISO, for instance, was. California is not a membership-based organization. It's very staff-driven. The staff goes and notices new trends in the market and then proposes changes to the market rules to enable new entrants, for instance, in this case. People comment on it as if it's an agency rulemaking, and then they come to a result. That one had been more open to energy storage, probably because it's also very influenced by the California state government, which had been putting a lot of resources behind energy storage, but also potentially because of the way it makes these decisions through the sort of staff-driven process. Other markets had really fallen behind. And so then what Stephanie has done is from the time that FERC issued Order 841, Stephanie's been tracking the different processes that all of the markets, the six markets that are governed by FERC have gone through at the same time. So it's a sort of contemporaneous exercise of who are they talking to and how are they going through this process of updating their rules to accommodate more storage. And it, it is interesting seeing how, how that plays out. And we're trying to make the link between how they're making these decisions and then ultimately where battery storage is going to find the highest value. We'll start to see it being built in the markets where it can play and it can make the most money from the most auctions. Great. Yeah, that those two examples are really helpful, um, sort of putting the meat on the bones there. So now that we've got those two examples in place to kind of orient us a little bit, let's, let's zoom back out. And in May of this year, 
2021, that is, uh, you and a number of colleagues from the RTOGov project put together a formal comment to the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission related to something called uh, the creation of an Office of Public Participation. What's this idea of uh, the Office of Public Participation, and what are some of the key messages that you and your colleagues uh, were seeking to deliver? Sure. So this Office for Public Participation is is a really interesting creature. Congress actually gave FERC the authority to create this office 40 years ago, and FERC had just never acted on it for a very long time. And, and FERC commissioners will tell you this. I mean, until the last 10 years, they worked in relative anonymity. People didn't really know what FERC was. Um, it wasn't really in the vernacular. People weren't talking about, hey, did you hear about the FERC decision? Um, this was not something that beyond public utilities and some of the DC law firms that represent those utilities, it was a very inside baseball game. Most other people were not paying attention. Uh, FERC really uh, started to draw some public attention and fire around uh, approval of natural gas infrastructure. It's something they've done for many decades when um, Congress federalized the siting of natural gas pipelines. But there has been a really big build out of natural gas infrastructure in the last 10 years, sort of building on the, the fracking boom and the shift of a lot of our electricity generation from coal to gas. And so with that came a lot of sort of public awareness of, hey, there's this agency in D.C. that says yes to these pipelines. And so suddenly FERC was having to uh, contend with protesters in their lobby and on their front steps. And that was not something that they were used to. So I I think the Office of Public Participation and, and the sort of reason to bring it about now is really in reaction to that. It's much more about infrastructure siting. But the RTOGov team saw an opportunity here. We said, you know, that the way it's described in the statute is much broader than just infrastructure. And it just talks about for any of the activities that FERC is engaged in, really being able to explain to the public what's going on and to give the public more of a, a voice um, in these matters, including potentially helping them formally participate in some FERC dockets. And so we thought, well, we've been hearing from a lot of stakeholders, both within uh, the RTOs and without, who are concerned about RTOs being dominated still by the transmission owners and some of the incumbent generators, how they're not maybe moving along quickly enough to reflect what the grid looks like today. And then there is this uh, a whole issue of states passing a lot of climate and clean energy legislation uh, and regulations, and sometimes not really fully aware of how that will play out if they're sitting in the middle of an RTO. And so thought, hey, this Office of Public Participation could also play a role in helping engage the public on around these entities and explain to them what they are and what their role is in energy policy making and potentially to help people get, you know, better view inside what's happening and potentially even a voice in in decisions that are made at RTOs. Mm -hmm. And so if we play that out uh, and kind of imagine the ways in which these new stakeholders might affect decisions ultimately. What are some of the uh, sort of end states that you might imagine? Uh, or what are the ways that you think the public and, you know, new stakeholders might be able to affect these decisions in ways that, you know, alter the outcomes that we care about, like costs and reliability and emissions and things like that? 
Yeah. So, I, I mean, it's, it's a great question because I, I, these are still really technical organizations and the issues they are grappling with uh, are, you know, incredibly important because they ultimately depend on how much you're paying for your electricity and whether your power stays on during storms and other disruptions. Um, and yet th this has become such an area of social focus. I mean, this is really where we think we can make a lot of near-term reductions in greenhouse gases. This is uh, where a lot of equity conversations have come about, about the siting and sort of costs and benefits of our electricity system and who pays and who benefits. And so trying to figure out the right way to marry this up, I think it's probably not uh, fair to imagine a world where, you know, members of the public are participating in formal RTO processes just because they are so time consuming and so technical. But thinking about proxies for the public to have a voice, um, for instance, states, I mean, the, the state role in these markets is really interesting. Um, in the East, a lot of the states along the same time that, that RTOs were being formed, these states restructured their utilities and sort of broke up the vertically integrated utilities so that the, the utilities selling you power at your house couldn't also own generation. Um, that made the market more competitive. It also reduced the uh, influence that the state utility regulators had over uh, public utilities. They still would regulate the sort of utility that has the distribution wires to your house, but they had a little bit less of a say over other aspects. And so, that sort of loss of power has been, I think, exacerbated then by entrance into these markets. It's really the market starting to make more of a decision about what types of generation gets built, even though the Federal Power Act leaves that power with states. And that's a traditional role of states. And states are trying to pull that back and, and, and use that power again, we're seeing in the East Coast, particularly around clean energy. And so, uh, Whereas further out west, a lot of the utilities have remained vertically integrated. They are still traditionally regulated directly by state utilities. And as a result, the markets that have grown up around those states have had to accommodate state preference a whole lot more. And so there's a real question about uh, what roles the states should play in these restructured states. And, and is there some better balance of power between the markets and the states to figure out, okay, if, if a collection of states want more clean energy in the market, at what point is it not a market if they're just like forcing power in based on like their preference? On the other hand, is there some way that the market can reflect those preferences, for instance, through a carbon price? And so I think some of the ways to get more public involvement in RTOs is to think about these proxies, thinking about, uh, you know, states uh, and, and ideally the the policy preferences states are expressing are, are a matter of a democratic process. And so the people have sort of spoken there, uh, at least in theory. And so then, you know, maybe having states have more of a voice and then the, the, the choice of generation is one way to go. Um, environmental NGOs. We have a couple of people in RTOGov from Vermont Law School, Mark James and Kevin Jones, who've been in, uh, researching and interviewing lots of environmental NGO stakeholders across the country in these markets and figuring out, is that a proxy for the public? And is, is it a matter of improving their ability to weigh in? Um, and then just looking at different processes entirely. Is it better to have this sort of membership-based thing that we see in the East or something more like a California where it, it's the, sort of the, the professionals come up with proposed changes 
the staff within the market, and then everyone in the public is welcome to weigh in uh, with comments. Um, and so uh, that's still really an open question, and there probably isn't one answer about how you make this more public. But we thought some first steps that we suggested in our comments to FERC were just using this Office of Public Participation to provide RTO 101s, just so people know what these markets are, know if they live in one, know if that is a player in the sort of energy transition conversation in their region, and then figuring out ways to uh, help people track more what's happening in those markets and maybe even having an RTO ombudsman for say there's a new uh, market entrant, uh, some sort of new either power producer or demand response product and they're having a hard time getting into markets. I mean, th even thinking about membership based, are you going to pay a membership due, uh, sit in hours and hours and days and days and weeks of meetings in the hopes of trying to find enough allies to help you change market rules so that you even have market access. I mean, that's a heavy lift. And so we were thinking, um, again, that's maybe not general public, but that is, you know, some stakeholders that right now are having a hard time getting into those markets. Could an ombudsman help them? That's so interesting. Well, um, Kate, this is such a complex topic, but you've done such a good job of, uh, as you said, sort of giving us a 101 introduction to it. And I hope people will explore the RTOGov uh, project website, which of course we'll have a link to on the bottom of our page. And um, let's close it out now with uh, the same question that we ask all of our guests, which is to recommend something that's on the top of your literal or metaphorical reading stack. And, and I will start with a quick podcast recommendation uh, that I got from my colleague, Karen Palmer. It's a podcast called How We Survive. It's from Marketplace, the um, NPR show. Uh, and it's by Molly Wood, who's one of their great reporters. The show is all about lithium mining. It's so good. Um, it's about lithium mining in the United States. Lithium, of course, being the crucial ingredient for today's battery technologies that are so relevant to this conversation about RTOs and energy storage that we've been having. So it's just really well produced. It's really fun. She takes road trips of the type, uh, Kate, that I think you and I would both enjoy to places in uh, Oregon and the Salton Sea in California and, and all over the place. So um, yeah, I really recommend it. It's a really nice listen. Um, how about you, Kate? What's on the top of your stack? Yeah, well, since you mentioned lithium mining, I was I was between a couple of things, but I, this is actually a couple of years or it, yeah, it's almost a couple of years old now. But there is this Atlantic article by Will Hilton uh, called "History's Largest Mining Operation Is About to Begin," and it's about seabed mining for rare earth minerals or these energy transition minerals. And it I. I the article blew my mind. I, I, it was just a, like a whole new frontier. I was learning in the article about creatures that I didn't know existed on the seabed and the fact that we are developing these giant machines to suck everything off the ocean <laughs> floor. <laughs> and, it was really, and then the, just the really interesting regulatory ins and outs with the International Seabed Mining Authority. or It was really, I, I thought, really fascinating, terrifying, but um, fascinating. So since you mentioned lithium, that was uh, that's an article that I read almost two years ago and have gone back to several times. That's great. Okay, great. Well, we'll definitely have a, a link to that in the show notes. I haven't read that, so I'll, I'll have to put that on my list as well. Um, yeah, we've got mining the deep sea. We've got mining asteroids. We've got mining the moon and Mars. We're mining all over the place. Yeah. It's really, it's like science fiction is here. Totally. 
Okay. Well, Kate uh, Konchnik from uh, Duke Law School, thank you so much for coming on Resources Radio today, helping us understand the ins and outs of RTOs and FERCs and NERCs and all the other acronyms. And uh, <laughs> yeah, we just really appreciate it. It's great talking to you as always. Oh, wonderful. I, I really appreciated being on the show. So thank you. You've been listening to Resources Radio. Learn how to support resources for the future at rff.org support. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson, with music by me, Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.